there's a number of ways we can handle the fellowship tonight. Of course, Brother Ron will, will, will certainly have much to say. But if you have something particular that you would like to be in fellowship about, one way to do it is just to simply ask a question. The other is we do have some cards over on the table in the back. And if you want to just put a question or even a topic, tonight is not so much question and answer or question and response. It's really fellowship. So the idea is if you have a couple of matters that you would like to have some specific fellowship on, you can, you can present that, either just to mention it to us or or to put something down on a card. Uh, this is, uh, in, in fellowship with Brother Ron beforehand, it's the, this is not a time for a message, but a time for some fellowship. So you can certainly contribute to that, at least by putting, putting forth what, what you would like to get into. So again, there's a couple ways to do that. And the more that comes from you in this way, the better it is. I would like to respond to real-life matters, matters that are important to you, uh, not as any kind of counselor, but simply as a brother with some amount of experience and some measure of understanding. <clears throat> I'd like to read to you the an email I received about 20 minutes ago, and I my intention is that it will be encouraging to all single sisters, okay? That's the intention. But what a man intends and what a woman actually experiences are not always the same thing, but at least you know the intention. Dear Brother Ron, I don't know if you remember, but my fourth term in the training, you told me that the Lord wanted me to have, quote, a happy marriage. Not perfect, happy, and a pleasant church life. I cried because you knew exactly what was going on in me, even though I didn't know and also because I didn't see how this would be possible. I also saw that the Lord Jesus wanted to cherish me very personally. The year after the training, I struggled in a difficult courtship which ultimately resulted in confusion and anxiety. Through the help of the saints, the Lord has been healing. In light of your fellowship with me two and a half years ago, I wanted to share with you the good news that, first name, last name of a brother, and I are, in, and I are engaged and will be married in May. From the start of the courtship, the Lord has showed me that his ways are higher than my ways, and he knew exactly what I needed. It is no question that the Lord was behind the scenes orchestrating. We are so happy. And you know the symbol that's used in emails to indicate this. I hope this encourages you at least a little. 
Praise the Lord for the love and light in his body. Amen. So this is a real life situation of a sister with a, a certain weakness in her soul and she needed a particular brother that would see the whole person and not marry a dream. And it looks like they're off to a happy start. Okay. Now some preliminary fellowship for maybe 10 minutes to present something to you about sisters in the church. And then we pause to see where we go from there. We have a card? Okay. We have a card. Okay. Um, and then we'll respond as time allows. Okay. So I believe this fellowship for about 10 minutes, and, and I know where the little hand is and where the big hand is, and I think I know where it was when I started, so that should help. Uh, this is just something we should have an understanding of. According to Galatians 3, in Christ, there is no male and female in Christ. So even this distinction has been removed and does not exist in Christ. And because of that, the brothers and sisters can be one and can have pure fellowship within measure. But in the church, the distinction remains because the church outwardly exists in the old creation. And in the old creation, God has principles regarding all manner of things, including what a man is and what a woman is. So in 1 Corinthians 11, it's not the man who has a covering, it is the woman who has a covering. The same thing in chapter 14. So we uphold both. We realize that in Christ, there is no male and female. Ultimately, in resurrection, this distinction will not exist among the sons of God. Uh, we will be married, but not to a human spouse, to the redeeming God. And then a second matter I would point out, just in sketch, is that due to their God-created nature and their spiritual capacity, which surpasses that of brothers by design, the life level and the degree in which Christ is experienced and ministered in a church is determined mainly by the sisters. Brother Lee says, and this to him was a fact of history, Brother Nee 
was ministering in Shanghai. <clears throat> but a good number of sisters were serving. And Brother Lee said 10% of the advance of the church was due to Brother Lee's ministering 90% to the sisters. So let me comment. This is on the second line of the three. On the life side, then the third line will be on the practical side. All the strategic steps that God took in bringing Christ forth and bringing him through human life, death, and resurrection, in all these steps, sisters played a crucial role. That is a historic fact, which I'll briefly mention. But in principle, according to the principle of incarnation, of God working in, through, and with human beings, it's the same experientially. So it was through Mary that the Lord was brought forth. And in many ways, it will be through the sisters that Christ will be brought forth into the church life. Then in the Lord's ministry, the sisters represent love toward him, not the brothers. The brothers cannot equal the sisters in this matter. The brothers have to become Females in relation to the Lord to be part of the bride to enter into this. But it's always the female that is pouring out. And according to Luke chapter 8, it's the sisters that are aware of the practical need of the Lord and his disciples. And they are ministering to the Lord and his disciples in a very practical way. At the, during the crucifixion, uh, the, bro the brothers were there in a certain way, but the sisters were there intrinsically, more than one. Who came early to the tomb before dawn? It wasn't the brothers. It was the sisters. When the sister reported to the brothers, the brothers made a dash for the tomb and they examined the data and they saw the tomb was empty. The grave clothes were there. The face napkin was folded up. They analyzed the data. Then they inferred that the Lord must have been resurrected. Then they left, being satisfied with info. But the sister, being extremist in quotes, in loving the Lord, was not somehow content with the mere upward evidence. She wanted the Lord, and she got the Lord, and she got revelation. And understandably, she wanted to cling to him and stay there. But he said, go to my brother's. As far as we know, he didn't tell her the kind of reception she would get. Basically, the brothers thought she was nuts. Okay? 
But eventually, the Lord vindicated that. Then they were also witnesses of his ascension. So the sisters, it's indispensable, okay? If the sisters don't function in this way, I cannot travel, I cannot minister, not to this scope. It's not possible. The supply has to come through the body. It comes largely through the sisters praying and their experience. Then the third line is their practical service in the church life. And uh, I would recommend, I think it's a booklet, otherwise you can access it by a Living Stream Ministry search on Serving Sisters. There's a message on the Serving Sisters in the Church Life. And Paul, in Romans 16, is about to engage in the blending of the saints and the churches together by his greetings. But before he does anything, he commends his sister, Phoebe, who is, was a deaconess, a patroness, a one who served him and many others. So he commended her, and then he charged the church, take care of whatever she needs. Then I'm wondering, this is the last thing I'll mention, and I think we're going to do the 10-minute thing. Um, have you ever wondered why in the greetings, when he comes to a married couple, he mentions the sister first? Greet Prisca and Aquila. I don't know what Aquila felt. Aquila felt. I think a macho man brother would say, hey, things are out of order here. You know. But he greeted Prisca first. That is no accident. Because probably in leading the family into the church life and enabling the church life to be in the home, and in the practical service, and in, Paul said, they both risked their necks for my sake. To be one with, to be one with the apostles eventually will be a risky venture sooner or later. Well, it's not an accident. It's to recognize that in this matter, sisters may take the lead. Not in administration, not in teaching, not in gospel preaching, but in loving the Lord, experiencing the Lord, and in the practical church life in its service, the sisters have a primary role. Okay, now I'm pausing, and I only have one card. I have two cards. Um... Okay, let me start with uh, the, the shorter question that came second, and then we'll go to this one next, no matter what comes in. What is the role of the sisters in the children's work? Uh, okay, the children's work is an aspect of the church life. 
So it's under the direction and administration of the church. But the actual service is primarily carried out by the sisters. So they have a primary role in actually doing it and being with the children of all levels. It's not a, just a female thing, but it's where they can be nursing mothers and where they can be very active in cherishing and fostering the children's development. But they're under uh, the covering and direction of the church. And by the way, lest I forget, it, it's, it's uh, a little bit out of sync. But I, I want to remember this question, so I will just ask it now. When Paul's writing Philippians, and he comes to chapter 4, why does he only mention the sisters to be of the same mind? And what's the big deal if sisters are not of the same mind? Okay, maybe by 8.55, with our last gasp, we can consider this, okay? Because it's a very important matter. And this is a challenging thing for you. This is not easy. Okay. How do sisters bear fruit in the various stages of human life? Being single, married, married with children. Okay. We have to ask how questions. But we can never answer how questions in the way of a method. The way sisters bear fruit in the various stages of human life is really the same way brothers bear fruit in the various stages of human life. By living a life of abiding in the Lord, by being in the mingled spirit. It's not a work. Bearing fruit is not a work. Bearing fruit is the overflow of life, with life being imparted to an empty human vessel. And the Lord has ordained that it, it, the way of restriction in every stage of human life, uh, having to work, that's a law, having to sleep, being limited by children, being limited by health, whatever it is, that is not the problem in and of itself. So there needs to be, if we're going to bear fruit, then we need to be in the vine where the life flow is. Then along with that, there needs to be some people on our heart, a relative, a family member, a friend from college days, a neighbor, uh, a co-worker, someone whose destiny matters to you. You just care about this person. And the combination of having a heart of concern and abiding in the Lord in the midst of your human life will issue in <clears throat> a particular kind of prayer that's in John fifteen seven. 
you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will. That's a particular kind of prayer because we ask whatever we want. And you may say, okay, I want a Mercedes. Well, that's not going to work because first you have to abide in the Lord. Then his words abide in you, indicating to you what is on his heart. Then that becomes what you want and you pray that. And according to the context, it is related to uh, fruit bearing. Now, with married with children, uh, I'd like to make an observation. And I'm not holding up my wife as a standard model, okay? I was just deeply touched when she shared this with me uh, decades ago. And I knew, especially in the light of the background, which I'll mention very briefly. Uh, her mother destroyed her psychologically during her teenage years. Not totally disabling her, but profoundly wounding her. And her grandmother did the same to her. And now she's married. We're a young married couple. And she wants to be a mom. But she's also afraid of being a mom. But the Lord visited her and the Lord ministered to her and gave her the assurance. The line stops right here. You will not be what your mother was to you. That's the background. And then when the children came, the first one was a girl who cried more or less for a year. <laughs> At least the neighbors thought so <laughs> until we moved elsewhere. <laughs> but this is what this is how she approached it. This is a ministry to the Lord. Wow. To be a mother is to serve the Lord. It's a ministry. That is my background for saying the restriction of children. It isn't a curse, okay? You're not going to go to Harvard Yard with all three kids. First of all, they all have, to, all have to be well at the same time, okay? And if it's winter, you've got to get them all dressed at the same time. And you get one dressed, and when someone says, Mama, I have to, and then you've got to do the undo the thing. But living within limitation is no problem to fruit-bearing. The Lord will produce a situation where, let's say during the course of six months or a year, life can flow to one other person. You know, I'm not young, and I worked at regular jobs for many years before I started, started serving full-time. And it's just a fact. This is not a boast. Wherever I was for any period of time, someone got saved. Not by preaching to them, but by being as much in the Lord as I was able or willing to be at that time. And being a good worker and being a friend. And then a connection was made and then the Lord arranged a circumstance in that person's life. 
and they wanted to have a contact, and they got saved. It's not a work. It's the overflow of life. Okay, here's my, here's the other card. And let's, um, let me just read it. I'm reading it for the first time. I am a high school teacher of overaged 11 and 12th graders. I'm teaching a unit on conflict between Palestine and Israel from ancient history to the present. Next term in my humanities class, I have Muslim students in my class, as well as, quote, progressive teachers on my team. How do I teach this unit? I know I should support Israel, but my co-workers say Israel is a bully. Anyhow, how do I go about teaching this unit in a balanced way, if at all possible? What is God's view of this conflict, and how can I possibly translate that to my students' hearts and minds? Okay, you have co-workers saying Israel is a bully, so that's their bias. That's their bias. So because you're teaching in a public school setting, you have to teach without bias. You cannot have a subunit on uh, God's covenant with Abraham and his promise to give him all of this land and, and get ready because Israel's is going to get more and not less. <laughs> or neither should you have a lesson on there will be a great tribulation and the Antichrist will sit in the temple and Israel will be about to be annihilated and the defense force will be powerless and they'll just call on the Lord to descend from the heavens and the Lord will descend from the heavens. Okay. So I would try my best to present this historically about just the historical sequence. You know, who occupied that land and what other occupiers there were, and, and then to present as clearly as you can the Palestinian view of the situation and the Israeli view of the situation. And when it comes to the Israeli view, you have to be careful not to be too impassioned but you just present their view. You need to understand Israel's view. They considered this their homeland from thousands of years ago. And they believed that is theirs by covenant. That's how they're viewing the matter. And even after the Holocaust and World War II, world opinion generally was to acknowledge the formation of the state of Israel. But there shouldn't be, uh, because, of, because of your teaching, if you want to maintain your integrity, not only before your, your professional peers, but before the students, you're presenting the facts you show that you see the full picture 
The students have to realize you know what you're talking about. You know the facts of history. And this is the Palestinian view. We were here. We had houses. We had land. We were forced to leave. Now we're confined in this area. We just want what is ours. Then Israel is saying, this is our homeland and we were here first and this is ours. Then you might even be able to say this. I would, I think. I would. Okay, here's the heart of the problem of the conflict. Israel simply wants to exist as a nation state. The Palestinians want to Israel not to exist. So how can you coexist with someone who doesn't want you, doesn't want to be a co? And I believe if you present this backed by you know, adequate research and knowledge, and you present a, a view beyond superficial political perspectives. And if there are Muslim students, they have some appreciation. You know how we think. You appreciate our suffering in the West Bank, in Gaza. The Jewish students would say, you understand the Israeli mind. And then you state the fact, there are Palestinians and there are Israelis. They would be happy with a two-state solution, a Palestinian state. And this is what the world community would like, especially what the more liberal view would like. But it seems that this is not possible because you still have those who want to annihilate Israel. And Iran is their official statement representing the government is no Israel. That's why this negotiation about Iran being able to have the proper plutonium that is able to produce a bomb is so crucial. Because some are drawing parallels with pre-World War II and with the proclamation eventually of the Nazi state that we will exterminate the Jews. And they didn't believe it, and they set out to do it. And now you've got leaders in Iran saying the same thing, and they should be taken at their word. It's not rhetoric. So I would suggest something like this, but this is only a response. You're the one who's there. But I think it's very important to not communicate bias. Even if someone talks to you after class, as a teacher, you still have to be limited. But you can't say certain things. You say, I can only go this so far, go so far in class. The depths of my view 
are really governed by the Bible, by the prophecies in the Bible. And sometime we can talk about this, but this cannot be a lesson. Okay, I don't have any, any more. I have more. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> this one is important. I mean, I'm not saying the others are not, but this one, <laughs> uh, this one we, we, we have to attend to. How do you handle, address resentment? Okay. When your full-time husband is fully occupied with matters of the church to the point where you feel neglected, but when attempting to convey this sentiment, are reminded again that the church life comes first, to which you agree. How do you reconcile the resentment with knowing that it's seemingly petty? Okay, okay, it's not petty. Um, the husband is making a huge mistake from which he will reap the consequences sooner or later. That there was a time, that just hasn't come up recently, when I was with fourth-term brothers and we have this man talk about this kind of thing. I say, okay, I can save you 10 years in your married life. 20 I cannot do. But ten, I can save you. Okay, why do I say this? Okay? I will present you a list of really dumb things. If you do any one of these dumb things, your wife will be offended. That's just the first stage. And she will be hurt. That's the second stage. And she doesn't want to be hurt, but she is hurt. But now being hurt is a weapon. And so she will remember this hurt and remember that hurt and this hurt and that hurt. Selected memory. And it's like missiles in silos. And then you have one of these animated conversations, you know, exchange of words. And then all to the surface with the detail. She fires this missile with feeling, that missile. And then when it's all done, she will say, you ought to do that. <laughs> at which point, or you never do that, at which point the husband does dumb thing number two, and you say, do you think the facts bear out the accusation that I never do that? I recall that once 11 years ago, on October 17th, I did the very thing. Okay, now you're putting fuel on the fire. Okay. Yes, Christ and the church are first. Yes. That doesn't mean the wife doesn't exist. This is the most important person in your life. Brother Lee strongly charged us co-workers 
you said you must reserve one evening a week for the family. Okay? And so, the wife always knows the state of the relationship, the condition of it at any given time. The husband, if he's brave, will ask her. And then he will find out. But feelings don't go away. They, they accumulate. And depending on the kind of person you are and uh, the kind of disposition you have and how much you contain things, it's not a matter of whether you blow. It's when you blow. Because there's a need that's not being met. Okay? There's a need. There's a responsibility that is not being fulfilled. Now we are Christ seekers. We are here for God's interest. The enemy knows this. And he will attack most viciously whenever there is an unmet need. So the enemy will intensify the resentment, the anger, whatever it is. And that's when it becomes explosive. Yeah, how do I know? There's a list of dumb things. Because I did them all, okay? <laughs> and uh, it just may take quite a period of time where the wife is finally to say, okay, I'm willing, Lord, for you to touch me and to heal me and to forgive this and to go on. And so, um, if the brother just says the church life is first, that is adding to the problem. This is not the question. I'm not asking that I be first. I'm just asking that I be. Okay? That I be. And from my own learning, my wife and I had this practice. And we had another family that had a, of a similar mind. We practice preventative maintenance for this kind of thing. Twice a year. This is what we did. We like going out. See, in California, the snow doesn't come to you. If you want snow, you go to the snow. If you want ocean, you go to the ocean. But at certain times of the year, it's really nice to go out in the desert. So we would go to Desert Hot Springs and get this motel that have, would have these hot springs. And we just spend... Two or three days there. And our kids are happy to go with this other family. And we realize, okay, things are accumulating. And we need to take some time just for the two of us. Not just like an hour or two. And we would go out there. And we have very precious memories uh, I'm not going to go into them, but it was a cherishing time. It was uh, the time of rest, a time of peace, just to be together. Uh, 
to have the evening meal out somewhere together. And, uh, you know, we even had a way to do it, that when we got certain distance out of the city, there was one, Denny's, we would go, this is the official beginning of our days together, and then we would stop by, this is the official end, we're now transitioning back into our usual situation. Uh, really, I, I believe the sister wives, are they're quite reasonable. They're here for God's interest just as much as you are. But the need has to be met. The need isn't met. Uh, it's, it, it's not going to go away. Okay, It's not petty. We're talking resentment here. Then bitterness. Frustration. Rage. And then some little thing is going to set it off. And... Brother, husband, is just going to be clueless. Why, why, where did all this come from? Well, it's been building up. And then the enemy, well, I'm not going to say he sends a demon, but I'm inclined to think he is, just intensify it. And it doesn't have to be. The brothers can learn in the beginning, uh, and maybe some of them, their wives have said this to them, the wife says it, they'll never forget it. They'll say, dear, I don't ask for much. I just ask for the same care you give to everyone else in the church. That's all. That's quite convicting. So I don't know how you're going to communicate this. I don't know if you can communicate this. Negative feelings are destructive. We need to be emptied out of all negative feelings. We need to acknowledge that they're there. Go to the Lord just as we are. And seek him as to how these things can be resolved. It may be that you will have to um, speak... The four dreaded words to your husband. <clears throat> but husbands have to know what's coming when they hear the four dreaded words. What are they? We need to talk. Okay. <clears throat> we need to talk doesn't mean we need to talk. It means I have something to say. Even if I don't know what it is. I've got it in me to say. And you need to listen to me until I get it out. So sometimes I tell the husbands, if you can listen for 20 minutes without sighing, without interrupting, without asking her to get to the point, without checking your email on your phone, without rolling your eyes, you're probably ready to be raptured, okay? <laughs> because they don't go away. Negative emotions do not go away on their own. They have to be emptied out. They have to be touched. There is um, 
One situation I won't go into, it's just unbelievably complicated. But it's still the basic neglect of the wife as a woman, as a person, in her humanity. So the sister asked for fellowship, and okay, I can just do what I can. Then we were to have a follow-up time, but I, I sent an email. I suggested to her, maybe it's too hard to talk face-to-face. Maybe you should write it down in a letter. So there's some objectivity. You know, dear, this is for you. I just ask you to just calmly read this and bring this matter to the Lord. And that might work. I don't know if you could call in a big brother to go be with your husband and take him to Starbucks, but that may not work. I hope your husband wouldn't turn on you for doing that and saying, you exposed me. Now my image in front of the brothers has been marred. <clears throat> if you have a dear wife like mine, she will say, part of my function is to smash the image. I just care for reality. Isn't that what you want? I thought that's what you wanted. <laughs> okay. So that's that. I understand that our children are the gospel seeds at their schools. However, given the worldly philosophies that influence our educational system, my husband and I are concerned with sending our children there. Start first grade. We currently homeschool our children. We are not sure whether we are too much in our concerns And should instead we pray for their time at school? Okay. And our time with them at home, we are also considering uh, continuing to homeschool, but we are not sure whether we are being too protective if we do this. Well, all my my daughter and sons are middle-aged, so it's been decades. But my feeling is, I wouldn't send them to the public school where I live. I wouldn't do it. I I can't do it. Not in California. Not not with what is being brought down even to kindergarten level. I can't do it. And about them being gospel seeds, okay, this is for the teenagers who are saved and baptized. But even then, that doesn't mean you're supposed to do this red-hot gospel work on your school. You're just there as a God-man student in a fruit-bearing way to sow the seed of life into your friends. But the most important thing is to guard and protect your children from the evil one. And not some work that they're supposed to do. So I don't regard this as being overprotective. And you have to decide, you and your husband together before the Lord, how the Lord is leading your family. How others, what direction they take, that's between them and the Lord. We shouldn't have opinions about how we're raising one another's children. They don't know our situation. And uh, 
you know, there's one brother I know, he and his wife, they have eight children, and they're, they're quite strict and protective, and they basically homeschool them, but eventually they realize, especially with the sons, with their athletic prowess, whatever, they needed to transfer to a high school there in the city, and they took care of themselves. And one went to the Air Force Academy, the other got a football scholarship to go to Stanford, and and they needed that. But um, uh, uh, the children had to be protected from the evil one, and the enemy is working on them at an earlier and earlier age. So I'm not anti-public school. I'm just saying I just can't visualize myself doing it now. I'm so happy that my grandchildren are at Acacia Wood. I'm so happy that they're there. What a, what a blessing. They're getting the best education in a healthy environment. They can be little human beings, but they're not exposed to all of this horrible degradation. Okay? You may, you might, you may have touched on this earlier. I came in a little late. Okay? That's all right. But I wanted to ask about the function of sisters in the church life, in particular, in the meetings. Only brothers sit in the front row, except in (laughs) sisters' meetings. Okay? That's right. And break the bread. I understand that the Lord has a governmental administration in the church. But I somehow feel as though this reflects this reflects that of a sister. I have a secondary or lesser portion of Christ. Do you have any light for me? Well, we're talking about the order, the order in the body and the order in the meetings. And I remember being in a, in a huge meeting, okay, like 4,000 saints. And the sister, we were having the Lord's table, and the sister went up to bake the bread. And Brother Lee went up and told the sister to go back to her seat. This has nothing to do with your portion. It has to do with the fact that the church life is outwardly in the old creation. The distinction between male and female remains. And the principles that govern both still obtain. And the woman needs to be covered. And the woman needs to be hidden. And it's just inwardly you sense it's unfitting. If two sisters would go up there and break bread... And those that do it are usually quite bold in their disposition, which makes the matter even more complicated. But they can pray, and they can prophesy, they can praise the Lord. And some may ask, what about sisters calling hymns? Okay, so this is my personal take, which you can take it or leave it. There's no legality 
the sisters may surely call hymns. But according to my feeling, methinks half the time they're mistaken in what they call. So they lead us into the woods. And so we need to sing their hymn or gently say, uh, well, this hymn is to the worship of the Father. Could we please wait for a little while longer and spend more time to praise the Lord? Then we'll come back to this. Otherwise, we'll go along with your hymn. Here we're in the meeting, and then you call the hymn, you know, Olives that have known no pressure, no oil can bestow. And then, so now we're all in this deep wine press experience for about six minutes. But at the same time, there have been other times where the, the hymn is right on, especially when brothers are passive. Then what are you going to do? The meeting, death is coming into the meeting then you need a Deborah to rise up and deal with the situation. I, I Forgive me if I'm repeating something you, you already heard, but there was a prayer meeting in Anaheim several years ago, and it was really, really active, mainly because three middle-aged sisters were kind of setting each other off. But then I realized that the Lord wants to change the direction of the prayer. There's something he really wants us to pray about. So I stood up. And I just stood there and then he realized, well, there must be a reason he's standing here. And I said, I believe, brothers and sisters, the Lord wants to turn the direction of the prayer. But I don't know what it is. But I do know we all need to be quiet before him and seek him. So, those three sisters were the first to be quiet. But we all were, not Quaker quiet, but quiet in the spirit. Then after about half a minute, the prayer began to flow out from a sister for Boston. And it released a tide of prayer. So she sensed that in her spirit. She picked it up. She was inwardly inquiring of the Lord. But what do you want us to pray for? The brother said, you want to change the direction of our prayer. Then the Lord lets her know. Not one of the elders, not a co-worker. The sister. And we all knew this is the flow of the spirit. So you can do stuff like this. But, you know, don't break the bread. And, and it's not so good to to be in the front row in a general church meeting. We're not going to escort you out, but it's, it's, it's just not so good. Okay? Okay. Is there ever a case where it's, quote, better to not reveal certain things because you don't know whether it will be profitable or not. When is it fellowship, not fellowship? Is it ever better to not open? For example, parental oppression, unsanctified feelings, 
So, okay. There's only one legitimate relationship of total openness, and that's marriage. It's the only one. And even in marriage, the Lord will restrict you. You know, you have your own life with the Lord, your own life hidden with Christ and God. I don't intrude upon my wife's private life with the Lord. But by nature, marriage is a relationship in love and light. But all other fellowship is limited. Uh, Brother Ed Marks and I labor together in one spirit, with one soul. We can have genuine fellowship about many things, but it's not without limitation. So is there ever a case where it's better not to reveal certain things? This is very often the case. And especially if someone has, has had a failure personally, there's no need to make that known. The principle of confession is it's limited to the sphere of to what extent it's known, right? If someone makes a big mistake in front of the whole church, then you can't just say, well, I repented to the Lord. You need to acknowledge to the brothers and sisters, I was just wrong. My attitude was wrong in the way I spoke. And I repent to the Lord and I repent to you. And even personal things, um, unsanctified feelings, why would you disclose that to anyone? Um, you can bring that to the Lord. If there's something that's overwhelming you, that you're struggling with, and you feel, I can't get through this on my own, then the Lord will probably lead you to open to someone who is trustworthy. You can bring it into the light of that fellowship, but it doesn't go beyond that fellowship. Okay? No one else knows. But a sister came to me a couple of weeks ago, and she's living in a certain way. And I said, okay. And she wanted to, you know, ask for fellowship in the Lord regarding, it seems that the Lord is after her. And when it was over, I disassured her. I said, this goes nowhere, okay? It goes nowhere. Not to my wife, not to any co-workers. But we have to be uh, very careful. So many times, it's risky to open things. So if we're going to err, it should be on the side of caution rather than on the side of, of free disclosure. That, that's not a healthy thing to do. If you feel you need to go to someone and open up a matter that is something that you're struggling with and you feel that there's help in the body, then the Lord will direct you to the proper source where the person has the supply, the understanding to help you, and you know it will be covered. 
Because we cannot live without being covered. Okay, we have to be covered. And love covers a multitude of sins. And now we're living in a culture of just gross uncovering of everything online. It's hard to find privacy anywhere. There's just no boundary. But we have to be covered. In the fall, we have to be covered. And that's one of the things the Lord did for the first pair was to cover them. And so we should live under this covering and just be one with the Lord, recognizing only in marriage can there be a full disclosure. So I can share anything going on in my own being with my wife. I have no fear and she can handle it. But that doesn't. But I don't share things about the work, about the church. She knows where the boundary is. But as her husband, I want to be in the light. Okay, I want you to know where I am, with whom I am, what I'm doing. I travel. I stay in touch with her every day. I live in the light with you. The finances are open. Everything is open. You know where everything goes. It's better that you. Write the checks, otherwise I'm gone for a long time and I'm going to get late charges, so you just take care of it. This, this, everything is in the open. That's marriage. But there has to be the love to cover what is brought out in the light. So in the church, our fellowship is always limited. I, I remember... I had been in the church life for about a year, and <clears throat> I really wanted to be thorough in dealing with my conscience. And I didn't know it at the time the enemy was pushing me, and I, I sought this older brother among the elders, Brother Chang. And I said, I need to confess something to you. And right away he said, do I, do I know about it? I said, no. Then he said, don't tell me. Don't tell me. You don't need to tell me. That really helped me a lot. Okay, marriage is on many sisters' minds. I never would have thought it. (laughs) Yet I struggle with concepts and how it can be truly be a happy outcome. My personal observation from my parents' own marriage has been very negative, and I have found it contradictory to what many saints say. Hmm. I don't wish to be hardened, but it is difficult. How can I be healed from this? Well, that's one reason I read that email from the sister, because she had a background that caused the first attempt at a courtship to end in anxiety, and I didn't say it at the time, and depression. But I did tell her, and I didn't tell her naively. I said, I don't believe in the three rings. I didn't originate this. I don't believe in the three rings. Engagement ring, wedding ring, and suffering. I don't 
have that view of marriage that isn't healthy, it isn't necessary. Of course, neither do I have an idealistic view. Human life is a life of suffering, and the joys of married life are one of the few oases in that desert. But it's God's intention, read Song of Songs, that it be more pleasant and more happy than not. And it's understandable that you're shaped by your first-hand observation of your parents' marriage. And that's in you. Okay, It's in you. And then the fear of being in that kind of thing and wondering, is it really worthwhile? <clears throat> That's why I realize this is small comfort. It's probably no comfort, but I have to say it anyway. As a protection to the single sisters, if they take in the thought, the worst thing ever is to not be married. That's the worst. Well, how can you tell a single sister that the dream of her life is not being fulfilled and to not have it is the worst? But there's one thing worse. And it's a really bad marriage. And so the sister I mentioned it was a matter of the match, the combination. She found a brother. Okay, they're happy now. It's not a naive happy. She's been through much to have naive happy. But her view now is so positive. And the sufferings of human life will continue. The sufferings that my wife and I had for our children when they were little is nothing compared to the inward 24-7 agonizing over them when they're in their present situation. That's just the nature of it. So I indicated my wife had to overcome a major matter. <clears throat> the Lord shepherded her We've been through a lot of things. I have known her for 52 years. We met March 1st, 1963, Princeton, New Jersey. Love at second sight, okay? And it's, it's so pleasant. It's so sweet. And so... Uh, you do need the Lord to shepherd your soul and to give you a positive outlook. This will help. And then you, when the brother is manifested, you have a very thorough courtship. What I mean by that is, in a sense, you, you test out the guy. You just let him know that this is what I grew up with. 
I'm not marrying into what I grew up with. And if I see any sign in you that you're going to be to me as my father was to my mother, we're not doing this, okay? And he should be man enough to take it. So this is one story I'd love to relate. Uh, I went to a certain place for a conference. And a brother wanted some fellowship on a Saturday afternoon and a break. He said, I'm in a courtship with sister so-and-so. I said, okay. Then he describes to me how tempestuous, how stormy is this courtship. She is challenging him. She is testing him one after another. And he's not feeling sorry for himself. He just doesn't know what to do. Then I told him, this makes perfect sense. Why do I say this? Do you know what her father did to her mother and the family when he abandoned them, when he left her for someone else and neglected her? She wants to be married, but she's afraid that that will happen. So she is going to prove you from every angle and press all of your buttons and see how you react because she needs a certain level of assurance. Okay, then I stuck my neck up. Why I do this, I don't know, but <laughs> it just happens. I, I, th- I think this was intuition, I said. <clears throat> you know what I think is going to happen? Very soon. I think she's going to call you and she's going to say, it's okay now. Let's get on with it. And so about 27 hours later, on the Lord's Day evening, she calls him and says, everything is okay now. We just will go ahead with this. And then it just went very smoothly from that. That um, it's possible that you, you were exposed to this kind of situation. There's a tendency for it to be repeated. Things are in you. So as part of the preparation of your being, the Lord will heal you and shepherd you deeply. And then, <clears throat> there's another story before I make the point, before the comment about the brother. I was in Mexico City, and I spent a day or two in the training, and one sister wanted fellowship, and she is in no way uh, arrogant. But it's a fact, she is unusually brilliant. Okay? I mean stratospheric kind of thing. And as IQ, uh, full scholarship to Harvard Law School or whatever. And she fears she'll never get married because she realizes brothers, her peers, are, they're scared of women like this, you know. To me, I decided I'm never marrying a dumb woman 
the smarter the better. Not that I'm that smart, but she's going to have to cope with me, you know. <laughs> I want to be able to communicate with the woman, you know. And so I told her, I said, um, the pool is very small, okay, for the kind of brother that would just join himself to you and would not squelch you and would not be frightened of you, intimidated by you. But you only need one. <laughs> I know the pool is small, but you only, you only need one. And then I didn't see her maybe three years. And once in a while I wondered what happened. I heard she went to law school and was practicing law. Then I'm at a conference. I think it's the Thanksgiving conference, one of the feasts. We're all in a hotel. And I come down the elevator and I'm about to get off the elevator. And there she is. But she's not alone. And right away it came out. She said, Brother Ron, you said I only needed to find one. <laughs> and here he is. Here he is. She was Hispanic from Puerto Rico. He's African American from New York. I shared this at his sister's house where I was having a meal. And before I identified it, once she said she knew who it was, she said, I know this marriage and how good it is and how pleasant it is. So back, back to this sister. Uh, you know, the pool may be smaller. It's not as diminutive as it is with this sister. But you're only going to marry one. And it needs to be a kind of person that as you are in the courtship with him, as you bring out matters of concern, as you identify the need and what you need to have and what you do not want to have in your marriage, you realize he has the capacity to handle all of this. He's just the right match, and you will not repeat your parents' married history. You will not be exempt from the sufferings of human life because that's human life. But I believe there will be more happiness than sorrow. And when that courtship is reaching an end, meaning it's consummation, you'll have the full assurance. If you don't have the full assurance, if you don't feel you can give yourself and enter into this relationship, then don't. Because you need to be secure. And you need to feel safe. And you need to be able to respect the brother as well as love him. He's going to be your head. And you're willing to be headed up by a man, but not just any man. It needs to be someone who is learning to take Christ as his head, who has some substance, in the Lord and can really hear you when you open your being to him. And we can't make promises to one another that we can't meet, but you just have the assurance the person is the right person. And 
there's, it, there's just a pleasant flow. And then I'm going to go ahead with this. That's the best we can do. Okay. Okay, this is the last one, I think. Uh, I plan on attending the full-time training, and this may be very unexpected to my friends who are non-believers. How do I explain to these friends who I deeply care about regarding the purpose of the full-time training in a way that captures... um, Okay, I have been led to go. This is the Lord's will, and I would like to serve him. Okay, they're your friends. Then uh, they should be happy. If you are happy with the direction that you're taking. I wouldn't preach to them, but I would testify to them. Okay, I'm graduating now. I know I have very good options. I really do. I can go for a doctoral program. I have job opportunities. But I've decided the next step for my life is to spend two years in Anaheim, California. In Anaheim, California, yes. Because there is a special kind of, um, well, we call it a training. It's really, it's for education for those who love the Lord and want to serve him. It's not a Bible school. It's not a seminary. I won't come out a nun. Uh, I won't lose contact with reality. I'll be in touch with my friends. But that's where I'm going. And after that, I don't know what I'll be doing. It's possible. I'll serve the Lord forever. I think you can have a conversation where they can have a positive impression because of what this means to you. So by the Lord living in you, I believe the Lord will flow out to them. And give you a way to share with them, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to uh, kind of, uh, for two years in Anaheim, do a special training with a few hundred others my age. And it's a training to know the Lord and his word and how to experience him and serve him to carry out his purpose. Because this is what I live for. So that's what I'm going to do. I realize it may strike you as goofy and a waste of time, but you always knew I was a little goofy anyway. <laughs> okay, I'm just giving you a taste. Now, just like I, I do remember my question. Why did Paul name the two sisters? Well, this is... This doesn't originate with me. It comes from the ministry and those more experienced. When the sisters are not of one mind, then that creates a disharmony and a discord in the church. 
which limits the flow of life. That was a real suffering to Paul. That's why he asked, is there any tenderheartedness, any fellowship of spirit, any compassion? Make my joy full. And he asked, think the same thing. Think the one thing. So he was suffering from the friction. Now, when brothers have problems with each other, it's like breaking a bone, straining a muscle. It's painful. It limits movement. But it's not nearly as serious as when there's a wound to an internal organ. And the sisters are more like the inward parts. And it's not easy for sisters to be of one mind together. And one reason is this, and I don't know if my wife fully gets it to this day. <clears throat> I think it's still, I'm still a mystery to her. She said, why can you guys... You just turn on a dime. Meaning you can make such a term in your, turn in your thinking here. You have this idea and you're expressing this. And then somehow you're enlightened or you're informed and you drop that and you just make a turn. Well, there, this is in the life study of Ephesians somewhere. And Brother Lee says, because sisters by nature are they're deeper than brothers. They're more subjective in a positive sense. They're more experiential. So it's easy for things that remain objective to me are not objective to you. So when a sister holds to a doctrine, it's like her baby. It's just part of her being. And for her to drop it, it's, just, it's like you're asking her to commit Harry Carey. You know, and so, so Paul, he, he, he beseeched them, be of the same mind in the Lord. Okay, the only way this can happen is, Syntyche, you have to be in the Lord. Euodia, you have to be in the Lord. I wonder if we're going to meet them in the kingdom or the new Jerusalem. We may, but they'll have new names. I don't think you can say, by the way, I'm Syntyche. Oh, we read about you. Did, did, you, <laughs> did you ever solve that problem? <laughs> and then Paul appeals to someone who would be a yoke fellow. He said, is there anyone who will serve with me in this matter? And I would say, Paul, I'd rather go to Antarctica and preach to penguins than to try to resolve this matter. And so it's just something to learn that when something's in your mind, it's not easy for you to change. And if the sisters are not like-minded, the brothers who know life in the body are going to suffer. And you don't want that. So that is my little kind of sober word at the end at exactly 930 is there anything else we need to cover? We can go five minutes over. Okay. I think the best way to end, though, 
that some of us should pray. Not long prayers, but just some short prayers to just end our time by contacting the Lord and just expressing something to him. Okay? So six or seven of us would pray a short prayer, just several sentences. I believe this would be the best way to end. We shouldn't just go home. We should thank the Lord and contact the Lord for a time together. Okay?